God, we're thankful for another week. We're thankful to be here. And God, we just want to pause. We want to rest. And we ask that you would protect our minds and hearts from distractions, from all of the things going on today, this morning, or this month. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would use your inspired word, and that you would move in our hearts today. Lord, some people need encouraged Some people need convicted. Some people need other things. And God, you know what each of us needs, and we ask that you would move. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since Christmas is only a couple of weeks away, my guess is many of you are in shopping mode. Either you're buying gifts for other people, or you've made your list for the things you want. Now, over the years, I've learned a few lessons about Christmas gifts, and I want to share just three quick lessons. Now first, even though we might think every gift is a nice thing, there are good gifts and bad gifts, or there are at least some gifts that are better than others. My guess is right now, all of you could probably recall at least one great gift in your life. What would be that great gift you really remember? For some reason, what came to mind for me was when I was a kid, I got Super Mario Kart for the Super NES. That was just a sweet gift my family loved, so that was an awesome gift. But you could probably also recall a bad gift or a lot of bad gifts. Again, an example that comes to mind is my grandmother was not the best gift giver when I was a child. And so every Christmas what happened is she got us a Christmas sweatshirt or sweater that really had to be buried somewhere in our closet. This was before ugly Christmas sweaters were cool, so maybe she was just ahead of the game. I don't know. But the truth is some gifts are clearly better than others. And that kind of last sentence reminds me of the second point. There's also a good way to receive gifts, and there are bad ways to respond to gifts. You know, shrugging your shoulders and tossing a gift to the side because it's not what you really wanted. That's not the best way to respond to a gift from someone. Well, the third lesson is that how much you lo- well, how much you love a person, it's not necessarily measured by the cost of the gift. Love is expressed through gifts in a few ways. So one of that is cost which could mean the amount of money somebody spends on a gift or even the cost of time, that someone invested time to find the gift, to make the gift, or to think through it. When we know somebody has made a sacrifice to get us a gift, we feel the kindness of that act. Or it might be that the gift is personal and so we feel the love, that it was designed for you, and maybe it meets something you really want, a desire, or a need in your life. But there are also ways that kind of take away from the love given in a gift. For example, if you give something with selfish intent, that kind of takes away from the gift a little bit. My wife has told me to stop buying her cookbooks and kitchen gadgets because apparently that's really a gift for myself. It's my ulterior motive to get desserts that led to buying those gifts, and she'd rather have something she can actually enjoy. So to fix that this year, I got her the Sunday ticket on DirecTV for NFL. It's definitely for her, not for me, and she's not in here, so she doesn't know. So we're all good. Well, some of these lessons about giving and receiving gifts actually will apply to our text today. One thing we'll learn is that there is a good way to respond, and there are bad ways to respond. But we also see that love is seen in the value and the sacrifice of a gift. And for us, we'll see that the depth of God's love for us, it's seen in the value of the gift given in Jesus but also the personal sacrifice 
of that gift. So if you haven't already, turn with me to John 3.16, continuing our series in John this week. We'll be in John 3.16 to 21. Well, John 3.16, it's one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Most have heard it, and probably all of us, if you're watching, especially a football game, you've seen someone hold up a sign that says John 3.16. And it makes sense that it is so well-known because it is a wonderful verse about God's love. But it made me ask the question this week, how many people have read the next five verses that talk about mankind and how we're sinful, how we're guilty, how we're condemned, how we will perish apart from Jesus. And so can you just have John 3.16 without verses 17 to 21? Well, I hope today that I can just remind us that John 3.16, it's worth all the attention it receives. It's a perfect verse for Advent because it tells us the meaning and the story of Christmas. But we'll also see that you can't have John 3.16 without verses 17 to 21. We'll notice that even though Jesus is the reason for the season, we are the cause of his coming. And that Jesus' love, it shines bright because of the backdrop of the darkness of our sin. So God's great love is seen both in the value of his gift, but we also feel his love and how undeserving we are of that gift. Before I read this, let me just give again a little bit of context. We were in John 3 last week, and if you remember, Jesus was talking to a religious leader, Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus what he needed to experience life with God was to actually experience new birth. That he didn't just need a few more religious activities or to be part of the right group, but that he needed God to make him new. And then in verses 14 and 15, it actually led to Jesus sharing an example from the Old Testament. That Israel had sinned against God once again, and so God sent these poisonous snakes to give a spiritual lesson of what was going on. So these snakes bit people and gave them a deathly bite. And so what they had to do was God told Moses, raise a serpent up on a pole and have the people look up to this pole, to this serpent. And so the picture there was that to get healing, to get deliverance, you had to look up by faith to God. So Jesus was telling Nicodemus, just as they looked up to a serpent, today you will have to look up to a Savior. So all of that is the background leading to our text today of John 3, 16 to 21. And before I talk a lot about 3, 16, um, I'm going to actually dive into 17 to 21. Are you the kind of person who likes to receive bad news first or good news first? For me, I'm the kind that likes to receive bad news first so I can get to the good news. And since I have the mic today, we're all going to be bad news people. Well, let me read... John three sixteen to 21. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the first thing we're going to look at today is man's dilemma. And we see this in verse 18. Again, I hope you have a Bible, even if it's on your phone, and you can follow along with me. We're going to be jumping into these verses a lot today. So notice verse 18, what it says about man's dilemma. It says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And the point point here is that people are fundamentally condemned, or they're guilty before God, not because they haven't believed in Jesus, but they're condemned already because of their sin. So it's not their unbelief, it's their sin that condemns them. Paul argues the same things in in Romans. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which then leads to Romans 6.23 which says, The wages of that sin is death. And so since every person is a sinner, every person has broken God's law, every person stands condemned on their own before God. They're guilty. And as our text has talked about, the the result of that guilt is perishing or it's death. Both death in this life and an eternal death. And so what John is showing us in this picture is that man has a colossal dilemma. That we have sinned against a holy, perfect God who must be just and righteous in his punishment. That because sin is both over us and in us, because of the brokenness of the world, because of how the penalty of sin hangs over us, we are desperate and are in this dilemma. And so it's because of that dilemma, it's because of our sin and our condemnation and death, it's because of those things that God has to go to such great lengths to rescue us in John three sixteen. So we are needy, we are in the dungeon of sin, and on our own we cannot change it, we cannot fix it, we cannot get ourselves out. We need rescue. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, he reiterates here that we need life, and that life has to come from God, not ourselves. So that's the dilemma that Nicodemus is in. That's the the dilemma that mankind is in. And for us today, we have to personalize this. That's the same dilemma for us if we are not in Jesus. God is unfamiliar to you or new to you today, that might sound like a hopeless situation. But if you have any track record with God, you know that God specializes in hard, terrible situations. That when we are hopeless and helpless, that God steps in. So often in Scripture and in our own lives, if we didn't have those but God moments, we would be doomed. But thankfully, we are not the authors of our own story, and we are not even the heroes of our own story. But God is the author and the hero. And so what we'll see in this second point is that God has a different design. That even though man is in a dilemma, God has a different design and solution for us. That God will not and God does not leave us stuck in the prison of our sin and condemnation. Though we cannot save ourselves, though we cannot fix things, God does the work himself. Again, let's take your Bible and read the first few verses again. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent him in order that the world might be saved through him. So we've heard the bad news, and now the good news here is that God's design for man, it can overcome man's dilemma before God. That God's design or God's plan is actually to rescue us and redeem us back to himself. That he sends Jesus to be the Savior for sinners. That Jesus, even though he was God, he became man. That, that's what we talk about at Christmas, that we celebrate the incarnation where God takes on humanity, takes on flesh, so that at once in one person he can be fully God and fully man and therefore stand in the place of man in front of God. Listen to how 1 Peter 3 talks about this. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Jesus becomes a man. He lives a sinless, perfect life. And because of that, he becomes the sacrifice for sin. That he can then be a substitute who stands in our place because he is like us. So when he offers his life on the cross, he's not just dying. He's not dying for himself at all, but he's dying for us. He's dying as our substitute. That he experiences death so that we can experience life. You know, when we see this kind of sacrificial love in movies, it often moves us as it should. You know, for one example, if you remember the greatest Christmas movie of all time, yes, it should come to mind, It's a Wonderful Life. That's a pretty clear answer. Hope you get that. They're great movies, but that's the best. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, you might remember that there's the scene at the beginning when George Bailey loses all the money. And so the problem is that as he loses this money, he's not only now in debt himself and the bank's in debt, but the bank's going to close. And so he despairs. He's ready to end his life on the bridge, and he says he wishes he, would ne- he had never been born. He knows how hopeless his situation is. He knows he can't just come up with money. He knows he can't fix and solve this problem. It's too big. And so the most beautiful scene is there at the end. It's when all his family and friends come around, and they pay his debts for him. They give up their money. They give up their Christmas money, their savings, their vacations. They sacrifice themselves to pay off the debt of George Bailey. And that's a beautiful scene because when someone sacrifices personally to help someone else, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And yet these don't even compare to the gospel because what God does is he sends his son to die for the very people who have sinned against him, the very people who reject him, the very people that are undeserving of such a good and gracious gift. There is nothing so wonderful as the gospel story telling us about God's design, that he wants to set us free, he wants to rescue us, And he wants to save us, and that's why he gave up his son, Jesus. So when we talk during Advent about Jesus being the light who comes into darkness, that's not just talking about Jesus coming into the darkness of the world out there, though that's true. 
but we have to see that this is Jesus coming into the darkness of our own lives. That part of that darkness is our own story, our own sin. That apart from Jesus, you and I, we are in a pitch black darkness. That our sin does condemn us. That we are imprisoned to death. That death has its clutches on us and we have this sin debt that we can never pay off and never erase. And so what Jesus does is he becomes a man and he lives a perfect life and he dies. Why? He dies so that he can pay off that sin debt. He dies so that by giving up his life, we can receive life. He dies so that we can have a righteousness we would never have on our own. So Jesus comes to release us from those things, to release us from the chains of our sin and our fear and our guilt and even death. And he invites us to experience righteousness and life and peace through him. So no wonder that so many people have found hope and joy in John 3.16. It is the story of God's amazing love and free grace that saves sinners. Well, despite the towering presence of John 3.16, that's the verse we cling to, the verse we love, and the message of God's design and saving us. You should notice in the text that it does quickly move to five verses that do feel a little bit different. And in John 3, 17 to 21, and really this whole conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, he's first telling him who he is as the Savior, as the Messiah, and why he's come. But he talks a lot, especially in our verses, about how we must respond to him. That Jesus invites Nicodemus out of the darkness of unbelief, and he invites him into the light through faith. But Nicodemus has to make that step. Nicodemus himself has to believe. And so all these things might be true about Jesus, but the reality is we are called to believe. And so the next thing we'll see is that man has a duty, and then based upon that duty, man will experience one of two destinies. So again, let me read chapter 3, verse 18, and notice the element of belief here. It says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so verse 16 and verse 17 said that Jesus comes to save the world, and yet it says that doesn't happen automatically. But we must believe in him to receive that and to enjoy it. And this doesn't make it any more our our own work, but this is simply how gifts work. That if you get someone a great Christmas gift, but they leave it under the tree or they leave it in the trunk of their car, it has no benefit to them. If they don't open it, if they don't receive it, it will never translate to their life. And so this is saying that even though Jesus is a sinless Savior, that we don't experience that. We don't have a Savior unless we believe And we receive him personally. So what we see in our passage is that not everyone does that. Not everyone receives eternal life. And not everyone chooses righteousness over condemnation. And you'd think, and this gospel, it's such good news. Why would not everyone believe it? And yet we know both from this text, from the Bible, and even from our own experience, that most people do reject Jesus. And so it raises the question, why? Why would someone lost 
refuse being rescued? Why would people in darkness not want to enter the light? Why would this beautiful message of God sacrificing his son to save you, why would people reject that? I think Jesus gives us the answer in verses 19 to 21. It says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So these verses, if you heard that, they're saying that people reject Jesus, and the key reason they do so is because they love to be in the darkness. It says their deeds are evil, but they love those deeds. It says their idols will disappoint and crush them, but they and we, we still choose our idols over God. That God calls people into light, but that would require coming clean about our sin. It would require admitting our need. It would require a crushing blow to our pride. And it says that people don't choose that. It would even require, as Chris talked about last week, what Nicodemus struggled with is saying, I can't fix myself, and I'm willing to walk away from this whole life I've built upon my religious deeds and trust in Jesus alone. Well, Maybe that's you this morning, or maybe you know people like this. Their unbelief, it might not even be a matter of what they think about Jesus so much as they want to keep control in their life, that they want to call the shots. They want to run their own life. They want to try to earn this thing called salvation. They want to believe that they've contributed something before God. They just can't say, I've been doing it wrong all these years. And like Nicodemus, they might see Jesus as a good teacher or even coming from God, but they can't get to that place of personal brokenness where they completely give up on themselves and they trust in Jesus alone. Or maybe you'd say that while you think the Bible is true and while you believe what the Bible tells you about Jesus, you've never actually believed in him in this kind of way. You've never actually turned away from your sin and followed Jesus. Maybe you've wanted Jesus, but you've wanted all the blessings of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, kind of the get-out-of-hell-free card in Jesus, but you don't want to give up your sin. And so what this text tells us is that if that's you, if week after week, year after year, you're around the light, you do the Christian activities, you're here, but you've never given up your sin, then you've never truly followed Jesus. If you've never let the Holy Spirit expose your sin, lead you to conviction, and then you say, okay, I'm done with that, and you follow Jesus, then you've never truly believed. Because in our passage, there are only two ways to respond. You either believe in Jesus and you follow him, or you reject Jesus and you walk away. There's no middle ground where I believe partly in Jesus to get his benefits, but I want to stay in the darkness. It's either faith or it's unbelief. And our text tells us that there are then only two outcomes. To those with genuine faith in Jesus, it says that they move into the light. And they get eternal life. They not only get life with God now, but they get life with God eternally. 
But it also says for those who remain in unbelief, those who choose to stay in the darkness, they're staying in condemnation and they're staying under death. And so in this passage, Jesus is calling Nicodemus and he's calling us to belief because he wants to rescue us from sin. That Jesus wants to bring us back to God. That Jesus invites us to come out of the darkness, come out of the chains, come out of the condemnation and death, and come into the peace and the life and the freedom and the grace that he has purchased for us. And all this comes through Jesus. It's given freely by grace, but it's received when we open it through faith. I'm going to give one application of this for us today, and this is more so for us as believers. But one way we can apply this language of Jesus kind of drawing us out of darkness is allowing our sin to be exposed. That Jesus says, even for us as believers, we often don't come into the light, we don't walk away from the darkness, we don't come clean about our sin because the darkness is just safer and easier. That we'd rather stay hidden when it comes to our sins and our struggles, our fears, and the things we're battling with. Coming into the light with these things would require coming clean about some of the sin in our lives. It would require coming clean about the ugliness in our own hearts. And so I think sometimes we're actually afraid to walk out of the darkness and to step into the light. We're afraid, will God accept me or will God be appalled by what he sees and reject me? And this idea of walking in the light, it also applies to our relationships with one another. That with believers, even in this church, and maybe your own small group, do you honestly and do you humbly share your struggles? Do you walk in the light with them, or do you try to stay hidden and keep in the darkness? You know, the reality is that bringing our sins and our struggles, our fears, our anxieties, bringing those into the light and sharing it with one another, that's a hard thing to do. It's a scary thing to do. It's even an awkward thing to do. We're often worried about if people know the real us, if we let down our guard, how will they view us, and what will that say about us? But the truth is, and what we should see from this text, is that the reason we can come into the light, both before God and before one another, is because the gospel of Jesus forgives us. That because of the gospel, we can be made clean. That we are forgiven. That we will be defined by who we are in Jesus Christ and not defined by those sins or those struggles or those things that we're ashamed of. That Jesus' blood, it washes us white as snow. Not just from the small sins or the past sins, but it washes us white as snow from all sin. That Jesus wants to cover us with his grace. In his book, Imperfect Disciple, Jared Wilson, he talks about how Jesus' conversation in John 4, we'll be here the last week of December, that Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, he's actually doing this practice, that he's trying to draw this woman out of darkness. The woman is there at the well at midday, probably because she's an outsider, and she has some things to be ashamed of. The text tells us that the hidden thing in her life is probably that she's been married multiple times, and the guy she's with now, she's not even married to. And so Jesus actually brings that up in his conversation with her. He brings it up, and he's compelling her to not stay hidden, but to come into the light for healing. And Jared Wilson explains Why does Jesus do that? 
Why does he do it to her, and why does he do it to us? Why does he bring things up that are hard to see and want to bring them into the light? He writes, Jesus exposes this woman's greatest vulnerability, but not to shame her. No, not to shame her. The blunt, direct, command-giving, merciful Jesus brings her shame to the surface in order to cover it. It's interesting how often the areas of our inner selves we strive most to hide from Jesus are the ones he's most interested in. And it's amazing that these things about ourselves we hope he doesn't see are the very things he means to cover with his grace. Or as Ray Ortland says in his book, The Gospel, those places of deepest shame are where the Lord Jesus loves us most tenderly. So today, there's probably some way you can apply this as a Christian, that what are the things you're either hiding or the sins you're holding on to? What are the thoughts, the deeds, the struggles, the fear, the baggage, the hurt that you're carrying? The goal of Jesus in exposing our sin and our struggles, of asking us to step out into the light, isn't to harm us or to scold us, but it's to heal us and to strengthen us. And when we take that step out of the darkness and step into the light, Jesus isn't waiting there with crossed arms ready to chastise us. But Jesus is there with open arms, ready to give us grace. So it's understanding this gospel, this gospel of free and full grace and forgiveness that allows us to have the confidence to step out of our darkness and into light. So my question is, where do you need to do this today? And then I would encourage you to do it, to not wait, but to break free by stepping out of the darkness and stepping into the light. Well, so far we've talked about, first, man's dilemma because of our sin and guilt. Second, we talked about God's design and then sending Jesus to save us from our sins. We just mentioned man's duty and man's destiny, which will either be eternal life if they are in Jesus or perishing if they're still in their sin. So our text has walked us fully through the gospel. But before we, wanna, before we close, I want to highlight one more thing from our verses. I want us to consider not just what God does, but why God does it. I want us to see that it's God's delight in us that motivates his grand design in sending Jesus for us. So listen as I read John 3.16 one more time. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. So think of this. The core motive, or what is at the heart of why God sends Jesus, is a deep, unfathomable love for us. That God giving up his holy, exalted son Jesus to suffer a terribly cruel death and to carry the shame and the weight of our sins, that happened because he loved you so much that he was willing to experience that, to make that sacrifice, to give that gift so that we could be redeemed and saved. Our text says not only that God loves the world, but notice it says he so loved the world. The text is going out of its way to emphasize how much God loves us. That so there means that he loved us so much. Not only that, but then it says the extent to which he goes. 
says not only that God so loved the world, but he went to the extent that he gave up his one and only son for us. I'll be honest in telling you that I couldn't imagine giving Lily up for other people. Even for friends and family I love, I would not give up Lily's life, my daughter's life, for those people, let alone for strangers or enemies or people that have hurt us. But here it says God's love is so different than ours, that God's love is so beyond ours that he gives up his son. He sacrificed Jesus for the sake of the very people that have rejected him and are undeserving of this grace. Let me read just a couple other verses that talk about this. And notice how these verses talk about we receive this not when we're good and deserving, but in the time when we are not. Romans 5, 6 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then 1 John 4, 9 to 10. And this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another great one is Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, that you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Not a pretty picture. But it says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And so again and again, the Bible is trying to make it clear that the only thing compelling God to act this way is his love. That God, he sees us in our helplessness. He sees us in our hopelessness. He sees us in the chains of sin, of condemnation, of guilt and death. And he looks on us and says, I will save that person. I will redeem that person. I will give up my only son, Jesus, whom I love, so that this person can become my child. So these verses, they're combating the fears in us that say, well, that can't be true of me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm guilty of. You don't know how wayward my heart is. Satan convinces so many people that this truth about God's love doesn't apply to them because of how bad they are. But the wonder and the beauty and the hope of the gospel is that God's love isn't dependent on any measure of our goodness, but on the depth of his love. That God loves us because he loves us, not because we are lovely. Ray Ortland writes, We didn't ruin God's plan. We are his plan. His eternal plan to love the undeserving for the display of his glory alone. So God is not like Santa. The gospel is not like so many holiday stories. That God doesn't watch us to see who's good, who's bad. He doesn't look and see who makes it on the nice list and then give them gifts. 
that God knows all of us would be on the naughty list, that all of us deserve coal or judgment in our lives. And yet because of grace, he gives us the fullness of grace and goodness in Jesus. So the point this morning, the point from John three sixteen to 21, what I hope we see is that there is no Christmas gift you will ever give or receive that comes close to the gift of God in sending his son Jesus. There's nothing more valuable. There's no bigger sacrifice God could have made. There's no gift more lavish and undeserved. And there's no gift more needed or desirable. This is the greatest gift God could have ever given us. And it says he did so because of how much he loves you and I. In light of this, I want to just give us one final application this morning. And I want to just caution us then when it comes to Christmas and what we put our hopes and expectations in. I think one problem during the Christmas season is that sometimes we actually set our heart and our longings on the Christmas season that we hope the magic of Christmas can fulfill us, and so we ignore the meaning of Christmas. That we are so, ho- so lonely that we hope the parties and the gatherings can fix it. That we might like joy all year long, and so we hope the fun and the festivities and the lights and the cookies and all the other things can give us that joy we're looking for, but it can't, at least not for long. Now, don't hear me wrong. Christmas is a blessing but it's not a savior. That Christmas can be great, and I love it, but it's not everything you need. In fact, this can sometimes be why Christmas is actually disappointing, because the expectations and the hope we put on it don't match up with the reality of what it can give us each year. So in our sin, nothing from the magic of Christmas can remove alienation or guilt or condemnation. Nothing from the Christmas season, not all the fun, can give hope, or personal presence, or even hold out meaning to us. You know, in December, hardships and trials and suffering, they don't, they're not postponed until the new year. Financial struggles, marriage problems, loneliness and sickness, they're not postponed for another month. But Jesus comes to heal our brokenness. That Jesus alone can satisfy our souls. That he gives a peace that goes beyond the flashy lights. Only Jesus gives new life. Only Jesus can restore what's broken inside of us. We sang this already this morning in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So Christmas is not meant to be about finding fulfillment in the festivities but finding our fulfillment and finding our salvation and finding our life in Jesus alone. That Jesus comes to mend the broken. That Jesus comes to give strength to the weak. That Jesus comes to save those in the dilemma of condemnation and guilt. And so today, the encouragement for us is to receive that, to believe in that gift, to believe in Jesus, but also to enjoy him, to treasure all that we have in Christ to find our life and our peace and our joy and our rest this season in what we have in Jesus. Not in the things of the world, but in Jesus. So I encourage you to do that today. Let me pray for us. God, we're thankful that Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. 
And God, this is a busy and stressful season, so I'm sure there are other brothers and sisters who are weary. So God, I thank you that Jesus comes to give us rest, that he calls us to cast our burdens on him, and we're thankful that we can do that today. And God, we are amazed by your love, but we know how dark and sinful our own hearts are. And so the fact that you would love us, and that you would love us to the extent of sending Jesus to save us, God, that is amazing love, and we thank you for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.